Hi, this is Tawny from the Dirty Bits Podcast, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, and their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites. A no-setup WordPress website for your podcast with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to blueberry.com slash dream to sign up for media hosting and a PowerPress Deluxe site and get your first month for free. That's blueberry.com slash dream. Hello, dreamers, and thank you for joining me for this Veterans Day special. For my friends listening out there who are outside of the United States, today, November 11th, is a holiday we celebrate dedicated to American veterans of all wars. It all started in 1918, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. An armistice, or a temporary cessation of hostilities, was declared between the Allied nations and Germany during World War I. On the first anniversary, the date was commemorated in several countries as Armistice Day. And then in 1938, November 11th became a federal holiday. And eventually following World War II and the Korean War, Armistice Day became known as Veterans Day in the United States. Therefore, in honor of this day, I would like to take the time to express my deepest gratitude and appreciation to the men and women who have dedicated their lives to serve the United States of America. Today, I'm gonna tell you the story of one American veteran whose journey I was reminded of during my recent trip to Arizona. In this Veterans Day bonus episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Pat Tillman. Patrick Daniel Tillman was born, coincidentally on the day I'm writing this, on November 6, 1976, in San Jose, California, and was the oldest of three sons. He was a standout football player at Leland High School in San Jose, leading his team to the Central Coast Division I football championship. His talents on the field eventually landed him a scholarship to Arizona State University, where he continued to excel, both on the field as a linebacker, as well as in the classroom. He helped the Sun Devils complete an undefeated season, and they made their way to the 1997 Rose Bowl which they lost to the Ohio State Buckeyes 20-17. Pat did win the Pac-10 Defensive Player of the Year Award, and he was selected as Arizona State's Most Valuable Player of the Year in 1997. As a student, he also achieved several notable awards, including the Clyde B. Smith Academic Award in 1996 and in 1997, the Sporting News Honda Scholar-Athlete of the Year in 1997, and the 1998 Sun Angel Student-Athlete of the Year Award. Pat was selected in the seventh round of the 1998 NFL Draft by the Arizona Cardinals, where he played the position of safety. He quickly earned his place as a starting player, and by 2000, he was already breaking team records, setting a new record for numbers of tackles in 2000. In 2001, the then St. Louis Rams had extended a lucrative contract offer to Pat. However, loyal to his Arizona Cardinals, he opted to stay with the team who took a chance on him. But then, 
September 11th, 2001 happened and everything changed for Pat. It soon became a time for Pat to re-examine his personal priorities. And at the end of the 2001 season with the Cardinals, Pat enlisted in the United States Army. He was the first NFL professional since the Second World War to voluntarily leave the game for military service. What makes Pat's story stand out from many others who answered the call to action in the wake of the 9-11 terrorist attacks is what he was walking away from, a $3.6 million contract with the Arizona Cardinals. Pat immediately became this larger-than-life symbol of sacrifice and honor as the U.S. military and the NFL have historically had very strong ties, with the Department of Defense contributing millions of dollars for recruitment and support the troop campaigns. Joining the Army at the age of 25 landed Pat on somewhat of the older side of new military enlistees, but most definitely on the younger side of life. As it were, Pat's decision came from a place where he needed his life to mean more than just playing football, making millions of dollars, and living comfortably. So he, along with his brother Kevin, both enlisted, a decision thousands of young people did in the aftermath of 9-11. Pat enlisted in 2002 with the expectations of being in on the fight against Al-Qaeda and to help bring Osama bin Laden to justice. But rather, he was sent to Iraq, which he was unhappy about because he didn't feel the invasion of Iraq was justified. Despite those sentiments and his grievances, he would not walk away from the military until he met his commitments, despite the fact that the NFL and the Department of Defense presented him with the opportunity to do so. Pat trained as an Army Ranger and was assigned to the 2nd Battalion of the 75th Ranger Regiment. In 2003, he served his first tour of duty in Iraq, which the United States had invaded that year. In 2004, Pat and his unit were sent to Afghanistan to participate in operations to eliminate Eastern Afghanistan of Taliban and Al-Qaeda fighters. Pat's patrol was charged with killing or capturing suspected high-value Taliban and Al-Qaeda targets along the border with Pakistan. He had conducted patrols in the Spira district and in one village, he became known as the soldier who handed out small amounts of cash, $2 for children and $10 for men. And he also handed out small hand-cranked radios. On April 22nd, 2004, Pat was killed in action while in a canyon in eastern Afghanistan. The first reports indicated that he was shot during a clash with enemy forces during an ambush. Despite the fact that there were still some questions as to the details of this event that remain unanswered, within a week this became the official account of Pat's death, and that was going to be the story. General Stanley McChrystal approved Pat's nomination for the Silver Star, and he also received the Purple Heart. The military selected a Navy SEAL, whom Pat and his brother had befriended, to read a narrative provided to him by the military to read to mourners. It described how Pat 
charged up a ridgeline, braved enemy fire, and died defending his fellow soldiers. On May 3, 2004, Pat Tillman's life and death was honored in a nationally televised memorial service at which Arizona Senator John McCain delivered the eulogy. But this story was not over yet because that narrative describing the heroic end for Pat, a man who'd become a symbol of honor and sacrifice for the country, it wasn't true. As the details of Pat's death began trickling in, his family began demanding more answers from the military. By the end of May 2004, the media began reporting that Pat was actually killed in an incident of fratricide, also known as friendly fire. Not only did that information begin to emerge, documents would later reveal that the Army was aware of the possibility of Pat's death being a result of friendly fire from very early on, but chose to withhold that information from the public and from Pat's family until after the memorial service. A month after Pat's memorial service, his brother Sergeant pulled him aside and told him his brother had been killed by friendly fire. Pat's mom received the news by way of a reporter calling her at home for a comment. The military had been withholding important facts regarding Pat's death, and it would take more than four years of going after the truth, mostly by Pat's mom, Mary, as well as seven official investigations and two congressional hearings before some semblance of the truth was beginning to be offered up by the government. Pat's brother, Kevin, stated after the 2000-page report was released in 2007 that an alternative narrative had to be constructed for its own benefit. After the truth of Pat's death was partially revealed, he was no longer of use as a sales asset and became strictly the Army's problem. The 2000 pages really only revealed more of the Army's contradictions, inconsistencies, and inaccurate narratives. And what was also revealed was what actually happened to Pat when he was killed. His platoon had been forced to split up when one of the vehicles broke down during a routine search of an Afghan village. Half the platoon members were ordered to tow the vehicle. This situation kind of reminded me of the second season of Serial when Bo Bergdahl had expressed his discontent in having to sit by and wait with broken down vehicles, that they weren't allowed to leave any equipment behind. So I imagine that this was why these guys were commanded to tow their broken down vehicle. And while doing so, they were attacked by Taliban insurgents. When Pat and his half of the platoon were approaching to help the others who were under attack, they were mistaken for the enemy. They were hindered by a setting sun and weak radio reception in the mountainous areas and two caravans of soldiers fired upon each other after one group was ambushed. Those shadowy figures turned out to be Pat's half of the platoon. Pat was struck, along with another soldier named Brian O'Neill, who survived, and an Afghan contractor who was also killed. 
Pat and his companions had been firing at an enemy position, but their gunfire was misinterpreted. Pat was shot three times in the head. The documents also indicated that those close to the incident were well aware that Pat had been killed by friendly fire, and they knew within a day of his death. This included General McChrystal, the one who had approved the Silver Star nomination. The investigation brought to light that it was indeed a fact that the Army commanders and members of President Bush's administration concealed the truth of Pat's death by destroying important items such as Pat's clothing, his journals, and even hiding parts of his body to hide evidence. Of this, Pat's brother stated, the army was now left with the task of briefing our family and answering our questions. And with any luck, our family would sink quietly into our grief and the whole unsavory episode would be swept under the rug. However, they miscalculated our family's reaction. Through the amazing strength and perseverance of my mother, the most amazing woman on earth, our family has managed to have multiple investigations conducted. However, while each investigation gathered more information, the mountain of evidence was never used to arrive at an honest or even sensible conclusion. Pat's mom stated in an interview, they attached themselves to his virtue and then threw him under the bus. They had no regard for him as a person. He'd hate to be used for a lie. And I don't care if they put a bullet through my head in the middle of the night, I'm not stopping. Pat's mom placed the majority of the blame for this entire false narrative and cover-up on Donald Rumsfeld, President Bush's Secretary of Defense at the time. She is convinced that there's no way he didn't know about and was okay with and went along with the cover-up of her son's death. She described Rumsfeld as one who took a particular interest in the captivating story of the football star who left the NFL to become an Army Ranger. Rumsfeld also had a vested interest in special operations and would have immediately been made aware of Pat's death. But in sworn testimony before Congress in 2007, Rumsfeld stated, I don't recall when I was told and I don't recall who told me. I know that I would not engage in a cover-up. General McChrystal was the head of the Joint Special Operations Command in charge of the most confidential of the Pentagon's activities in Afghanistan, which included Pat's Army Ranger platoon. One week after Pat was killed, it became evident that it was indeed an event involving friendly fire. General McChrystal issued a memo to the president, as well as to other senior officials, as to who would be selected to make speeches about Pat's death. The memo stated, quote, I felt it was essential you received this information as soon as we detected it in order to preclude any unknowing statements by our country's leaders, which might cause public embarrassment if the circumstances of Corporal Tillman's death became public. The key word in General McChrystal's memo is if, insinuating that 
He was going to go to great lengths to keep Pat's family from finding out the truth surrounding his death. Still years after Pat's death, his family continues to wonder if they do know the real story of what happened to him. They push still to find the truth as his mother states, this isn't about Pat. This is about what they did to Pat and what they did to a nation. By making up these false stories, they're diminishing their true heroism. The truth may not be pretty, but that's not what war is all about. It's ugly, it's bloody, and it's painful. And to write these glorious tales is really a disservice to the nation. It was never really certain who actually shot Pat in that deadly friendly fire encounter. It was one of three army soldiers who opened fire. And years after the tragedy, one of them, Stephen Elliott gave an interview in 2014, stating that he has been unable to shake the fact that he might be the one who did it. He says, It would be disingenuous for me to say that there is no way that my rounds didn't kill him, because my rounds very well could have. In discussing the incident with the media for the first time, he said that he's been able to cope with Pat's death through therapy and that the reason he decided to speak out about it was because he wanted to reach out to any other service members who might be struggling with post-traumatic stress disorder. Stephen said in his interview that the incident was his very first firefight and that a few months after he and the others who mistakenly fired at Pat were demoted out of the elite rangers unit. He went on to say that even if somebody else was identified through forensic science as to have fired the fatal shot, that wouldn't have changed how he felt about this mistake. That he still fired upon a friendly position and knowing it wasn't going to have changed his sense of responsibility. Stephen left the army in 2007 and he hasn't spoken to the other soldiers who were involved since shortly after they were demoted. He also hasn't spoken to Pat's family. When he was asked what he would say to them if he had the chance, he stated, you just want to tell them how sorry you are and how completely inadequate those words feel. Brian O'Neill, the one who survived the friendly fire incident, also gave a televised interview. In it, he said that he wasn't really ready to think about or to forgive the rangers who fired at him and Pat, saying, to forgive them would mean that I would have to acknowledge they exist. And to me, they're nothing, all of them. Their lack of taking that five seconds to really understand what they were shooting at, two people died and it changed my life. Pat's widow, Marie Tillman, now heads a foundation in his name that invests in military veterans and their spouses through academic scholarships, building a diverse community of leaders committed to service to others. You can visit their website for more information at www.pattillmanfoundation.org. Marie Tillman has remarried, but She's been able to find a balance and keep Pat's legacy always close, stating, 
The impact of his decisions and the way he lived his life and just who he was affected many, many people. But I can still have my own relationship with him and my feelings about the impact of his life had on me and sort of bring those things together. And I wanted to have a little side note about post-traumatic stress disorder. Today, hundreds of thousands of servicemen and women and recent military veterans have seen combat. Many have been shot at. They've seen their buddies killed or witnessed death up close. These types of events can lead to PTSD. The U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs estimates that PTSD afflicts nearly 31% of Vietnam veterans, as many as 10% of Desert Storm veterans, 11% of veterans in the war in Afghanistan, and 20% of Iraqi war veterans. For more information regarding post-traumatic stress disorder and veterans, visit www. .ptsd.va.gov Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode The Tale of Pat Tillman What do you guys think of this cover-up? Was it necessary for the government to keep this information from the public and from the family? I'd like to hear your opinions about it in the discussion group how do you feel about the government perpetrating a false narrative? Let me know what you guys think. Stay tuned for regularly scheduled programming tomorrow. Sunday's usual episode will be up for your listening pleasure. Thank you again, and I'm hoping you're enjoying your Veterans Day holiday, although it's falling on a Saturday this year, so... I don't know how many of you are actually getting an extra day off of work because I'm not. And until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.